Hey now, and welcome to Where Wine Takes You, where we celebrate not only wine in the glass, but the process, the stories, and the people responsible for it far before it even makes its way there. I'm your host, Adam Montiel. Well, harvest is in full swing. Harvest 2021, baby. Paso is just lit up with excitement. There's, of course, you know, the big lights in the middle of the night as they're doing their night picks and yellow jackets all over the place and people on the crush pad doing their thing. Everyone's growing out beards. Even the ladies got full beards. No, it's just harvest is its own vibe. And in Paso, it is just an exciting time. Forklifts going everywhere. People bringing grapes to their neighbors. Try this, test that. Lots of wineries are celebrating too. Harvest, they want to get you out there, get you smelling all the great smells of Harvest. Of course, the big Labor Day weekend is here. That is a big draw. We got block parties on the 46 West. Tons to do in Paso wine country. So cannot wait to see you out here. We got a great conversation today and I want to get right into it. You know, Paso is constantly evolving. I remember when people didn't charge for tastings in Paso, like anywhere. Now I think Eberly might be one of the only ones left that doesn't charge. I mean, can you think of any more that comp tastings? I can't at the top of my head. I mean, again, things change over the years. I remember the chatter as we started seeing bottles north of 100 bucks, and it's like, wait, but this is Paso. Well, yeah, my friend, and it still is. We have a scene here. It's still holding on to all that is genuine, charming, and true, and timeless about this place, but part of the allure of Paso especially to those who want to create here, is that there are no rules. The same maverick mentality that got Stefan Aseo to pick up his life and move everything over here from Bordeaux and grow and make exactly what he wants to grow and make is the same shimmer that our guests today saw in Paso when they wanted to come here with the passion and the resources to do exactly what they wanted to do as well. And if you notice all these different ledges that these folks step out on, whether you maybe like this one or that one, they all collectively put the word Passarobles on more lips now than ever before. Folks are making reservations, filling hotels, tasting rooms, and it's working. Coming up after our conversation today, excited to introduce another great place to stay when you visit Paso. It actually, uh, gets name dropped in this episode, the place we will talk about the Piccolo Hotel later on. Now, today's guest definitely does things his own way, doesn't let people or chit chat get in the way and desires to live Paso along the way because uh, his sights are not just to be the best in Paso. It's not to prove anything to Napa that's been done. It's to be known around the world that this slice of California, Paso Robles, can be the AVA that is known for the absolute best California cab in the world. And he's determined for his brand to lead the way. We got a lot of great feedback about Daniel Dow last time he was on the show. He laid it all out there. And it's been one of our most listened to episodes. So you got to go check it out if you haven't yet. It's a good listen, good conversation. Now, in that episode, we touched on a newer and higher end brand than even Dow, if you can imagine that. He coined Patrimony. And he desires really a separate identity for patrimony, its own label, colors, even its own winery and production space, really a separate production altogether. Now, this brand is trying to carve out a space that Paso hasn't really seen yet, like uber, uber luxury. But we're not talking about 100 or 200 bucks a bottle. We're talking about maybe making four to five wines with the entry level being about three to 400 bucks a bottle. 
the highest level of this expression, the black label, is $1,000 a bottle. Yes, Paso's first $1,000 bottle of wine is now under a cork. I don't know what's crazier, that that sentence is true or that I'm about to get my hands on it today. And although the Patrimony brand is, in fact, in its infancy, by all accounts, he has been making it and sharing it with critics over the past several years, and it's already going nuts. Sold out, highly allocated. The Patrimony Cab de Leon, which is a cave of the lion. It is a 60-40 blend of Cab and Cab Franc. Even the barrel sample was awarded 100 points by Robert Parker. Jeb Dunnick said of this wine, Dow's Estate Vineyards, which emphasizes Bordeaux varieties, are planted at high density on steep slopes in the Adelaide district in a site once singled out by the great Andre Chelichev for its potential. Grown in these soils and in this climate, Dow's wines produce grapes with an extraordinary high phenolic content to which the estate's winemaking has gradually adapted. There's no one else making Cabernet Sauvignon like this in Paso Robles. And even more of their wines are beginning to achieve 100-point scores from top critics. Well, that is something. Along with Danny today, we will be meeting Chris Avery, Patrimony's Senior Vice President of Sales and Marketing. He's a Napa guy. They convinced him to make the move from Opus One. But the story is actually pretty cool. Not only to get Chris, because Chris is well-respected, well-connected, but they were able to get a team of people to call Patrimony home now. Uh, two more big names from Opus One, even the wine director from the French Laundry. So hearing how this team is coming together at this very special time, we are talking to this brand at an exciting moment, and I can't wait to get into it. I show up to Daniel Dow's home. I press in the gate code, and I am off up the hill. So I'm at Daniel Dow's house. What's it like? It's, it's nice. Of course, it's nice. It's beautiful. It adopts an old Spanish colonial theme in architecture to the tile and the decor, it is very, very welcoming. It's very comfortable. And although you walk into a house that's very humbling, luxurious, it speaks just as loudly that it's familiar and comfortable, welcoming. The entry table is like mine with a hat and some keys and maybe some mail on it. There are dog treats and dog beds on the floor in the living room. And they have just added a new puppy into the mix. I always feel very welcome, comfortable, and even a sense of belonging when I'm here. We sit down with a respectable pour, I must say, of patrimony in the glass that's just as big as it appears delicate. That's such a nice glass. Oh, my God. I always feel like Lenny in Of Mice and Men, you know, where I'm going to, like, swirl this glass too hard and the bulb is just going to go flying across the room. Just be normal, Adam. Just be normal. All right, let's dive in and introduce you to patrimony. Give me that mm-hmm sound, we'll get by, we pass on round till the job is camped out in the trees, it will simplify good company. Cheers, gentlemen. Cheers, Adam. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. Before we get into anything, I want to know the phenolics of this water. (laughs) (laughs) Danny Dow, what is up, my man? How are you? I'm doing great. I'm back in Paso, so love it. You know, I had one of the coolest reviews 
that somebody put on the Apple Podcasts. And I read it in its entirety last episode, so I'm not going to read it. It was really long, but it was so sweet. It was a dude who took his 65th birthday trip, a retirement party, 65th birthday, literally detoured the trip itinerary to come to Pass the Wine because of the podcast. And he mentions your episode, talks about... Daniel Dow's grit and determination not to chase the money, but chase the passion. From that episode, I was on my way, throwing Il Cortile, Le Petit Canaille, Jeffrey's Wine Country Barbecue. My trip was set, and he goes on. But I mean, we got a lot of great feedback on that last episode. It's probably almost maybe a half a year ago, but man, was that a fun conversation. It was. It was uh, from the heart, and... Uh you know, definitely uh, genuine. Did you? Oh, damn, damn right it was. <laughs> did you feel like afterwards it was just like this, like, ah, oh, that felt good? I did, you know. Because you uh, must be, do a lot of interviews, and but really one like that where you could just feel like, ugh, you know? I did. I felt uh, that it was uh, really time to air things out. And this interview, I think, allowed me to do so. Well, we go from red to blue today. This show is all about patrimony. Also, we are meeting Chris Avery, who is the Senior Vice President of Sales and Marketing for the brand. Really nice to meet you, Chris. How you, how you been, man? Super good. It's been an interesting road these last seven, eight months as we step into patrimony's situation and what it is that we're trying to bring the, to the world together. Okay, so why Paso for you? Why patrimony? I mean, it's uh, I'm going to try to keep it concise, but during the fires of 2017 in Napa Valley, uh, my family was evacuated the day that my daughter was due, and we had nowhere to go. And it was about a week into the fires that um, the smoke got so bad, and the fire truck started showing up in front of the house that we had to leave. By the time we had left, every hospital from Davis, San Francisco, Palo Alto, San Jose, everything had been closed. Um, I called an executive at a uh, gentleman who represented Opus One and had worked with me at Jordan Winery back in the day. And I said, hey, I need some help. I'm a little freaked out right now. What do I do? And he said, what do you need? And I said, well, it's myself, my assistant, who is also due, actually marketing manager of Opus One, and her husband, who's also having a baby the exact same time we are. It's our four dogs, our five chickens, and our bees that need a place to go. And he says, Damn, you got, you're high maintenance, man. <laughs> I mean, you're not welcome, coming over for a day. Or like, <laughs> welcome, <laughs> welcome to my life. Right. And my bees, he says. <laughs> I mean, good God, me of, he's got uh, bees. It me of Chevy Chase's brother-in-law. Yeah, me. right, yeah. <laughs> 100%. So this gentleman called me back, and he said, hey, I found a place for you in Paso. That place is rented for two months. It's all taken care of. I don't know if you know George and Daniel Dow, but they took care of it for you. And obviously never met him, didn't know anything about it. Came down to Paso, having been spent most of my time in Napa and Sonoma. I had my own preconceived notions of Paso, like what it is, what it wasn't. And about a week into us relocating down here, they helped us find birth coaches and the whole thing. Way too generous. And if you know these gentlemen, that's, that's who they are. About a week into it, they said, why don't you come up to the mountain? Mamas weren't looking to pop. I think the stress of the, of the fires kind of had them hold it in a little bit. And they invited me up to the mountain uh, with my marketing manager's husband. And we came up. I met Catherine Dow, Danny's daughter. Yeah, she's great. She's magnificent. She gave me one of those big kind of first time meeting you hugs and then looked me in the eyes and she said, are you okay? And I kind of had like the emotion, you know, like came of like the stress of what it had been and the fires and all the things and completely disarmed. 
I sat down, I had a beautiful meal, tasted through Soul of a Lion, Eye of a Falcon, the entire estate wine situation. This is quite a way to grab an employee, Daniel. I mean, <laughs> so, and again, like part of me, guys, I just think it's important to say is part of me was being polite. You know, it was thank you so much for helping my family. And, but I come from Napa and my nose is 7,000 degrees in the air. And it, I, I had a preconceived notion about the wines, but the hospitality blew me away out of the gates. I tasted through Daniel's wines. Again, and you're taught that you either make Burgundy or you make Bordeaux, right? So you make Pinot Chard or you make Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet, and there's not much crossover. From the very beginning, what you'll see across what it is that Daniel's able to do is he makes all of those varietals at an incredibly high level. And I was blown away by what was actually in the bottle. He ended up taking me down to, Daniel ended up taking me down to the Hoffa Mountain Ranch and we barrel tasted patrimony together. And there's two reference wines that I have. Like everyone has their aha uh-huh wine, like the wine that brought them into feeling connected to something. Yeah. My first wine is not sexy. I was a waiter at a brewery like many, many moons ago and I was like, but this is grape juice and oh my God. I hear you, man. Then I was blessed to work with a reference winery in Sonoma, 100 acre Opus, and now gratefully here. But so far along in my career, after traveling the world, I tasted patrimony out of barrel and everything kind of clicked into place, right? Terrence Mann says when the cosmic tumblers click into place and your view becomes clear, it's that same kind of moment where you go, this shouldn't be what it is. Yeah. And it redefines who it is that you are in a, in a microcosm. Your, your boundaries were very defined, being so good at Napa and that machine, right? Totally. Well, also exposed in so many ways to the French. I mean, at Opus, the winemakers from Vega Sicilia, from Mouton, from Margot, Latour, you know, Penfolds, etc. Like the big houses, Maceto, Ornelia, Sasakaya, they come and visit because of its it's a position within Napa and we have nice relationships with them. When you taste patrimony, no matter who you are or in a reference scale is that you cannot do anything but be impressed by the presence of what the wine is in the glass. And in sales, it's, it's a very hard thing when you have to sell something, right? That there's an opera, you have to overcome what it is. There's nothing to overcome here. It genuinely feels like sharing. So I left the mountain that day George basically called me every month for three years, birthdays, Father's Days, Mother's Days, Christmas, Thanksgiving, all the time, and said, when are you going to come and do this? And by the grace of God and their generosity to me and my family, we were able to make this situation work last December. So three years in the making to get to a place also where he had enough wine for us to sell in a broad market capacity versus a couple hundred cases, even though the quantity is small. It's going to continue to grow, and I'll let Daniel t- chime in on that. Yeah, I can't wait to talk about that formula. We were talking a little, about it, a little bit about it off the air. Uh, Daniel, what was special about Chris Avery? He's a very charismatic person, but, you know, when you are dealing with somebody who is a real pro, doesn't matter at, with what, uh, you know, what area, it could be sales, it could be uh, anything, but it's always a real pleasure meeting somebody who's a professional. Chris... <laughs> It's probably the person that understands how to sell and market and position luxury-wise at the level that we're at better than anybody I've met in the industry. There's an understanding there. There's a, and what, it, what is that kind of knowledge about that element? Because it's a unique space to be in, yet it's a very specific space to be in. I mean, to be honest with you, our environment is 
convoluted and crowded. And it's a very easy position to say you make a wine in Napa Valley that's $400, let's say. Partially, that's grape contracts. You look at Beckstoffer's model. You look at how it is that people have to manage these incredible sites like Tokolon or Dr. Crane, etc. And you become built, frankly, to make money in order to sell a wine at $400 with margins that are so thin that nobody can actually make money in the process. And so even if it gets high scores and recognition and you get cool, interesting points of distribution, the brand equity, how people feel it, how they attach to it, is it's um, distant. And our job, frankly, and what is so beautiful about this is providing a felt sense of connection to the brand. The wine delivers and over delivers every time. And how do we draw people to feel connected to what it is that's in the bottle? Don't take this the wrong way. How do you over deliver on a bottle of wine that for the average person might feel inaccessible? You know, but obviously you do. I'm tasting this is a beautiful wine. And, and Danny, we're going to go into like the winemaking process because, I mean, I've known you for a long time and your barrels, your corks, everything is so deliberate that, I mean, some of these barrels that are going into patrimony, an average person can't get. You have to have years-long relationships. You've you got to be probably calling their, you know, kids on their birthdays and something. There's a relationships that you have with people. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, some of the barrels that we get... There are only about 20 or so produced a year of it. Mm. And then we've created four barrels, mm. three of them just for patrimony, which are very rare barrels, which I, I can describe later. So, yes, you know, life is about relationships. And uh, my brother and I feel that uh, relationships are important, mm. uh, not as a mean to an end, but as a way of life. I think the conversation, you know, when you first saw your first $100 bottle of wine in Paso, and there's several now. There's several now, and um, a lot of them, you know, deserve it. I mean, they all, they'll over deliver. I think of a few that are maybe just under, and I've heard, you know, next vintage, it's, it's going to go up above 100 bucks. So we have seen that, and we've passed that. But to have a wine, you know, where, I mean, the entry level patrimony is at 400 I mean, you make a bottle, it's a thousand bucks a bottle. I do. I mean, who, who at that point, Chris, who are we selling to? Are we trying to get this in? Are we on the wine list? Are we trying to get these in, in like auctions? So who is the person you're thinking of? That's an awesome question. It's, it's a multi-tiered approach that's based on some qualitative metrics and some quantitative metrics, right? So I joke with Danny all the time is that he's Genesis um, Exodus. Like you create it and then we find a way to connect it to the people that would appreciate what it is that you're doing. The most important factor in defining what it is that that looks like is you have to quantify an account, right? Like who it is that you're actually going to be allowing or be building a relationship with in order to take a brand from zero, which is where we are now. It's in the infancy stage to a place of international prominence, right? So how do we get from here to there? The beauty is, is that things are pretty simple. It's black and white in the on-premise world, in the restaurant scene. So you have the Michelin Guide, you have Forbes Five Star, AAA Five Diamond, you've got uh, James Beard award-winning restaurants, you've got uh, Wine Spectator Grand Award-winning accounts. There's a whole series that you have to collate data, identify what that footprint is, and then decide how do these people help push the price and position of your wine. Based on the fact that our inventories, our quantities are so exclusive at the moment and will continue to be, is that we really get to identify those who have, A, also done a wonderful job with brands like Soul of a Lion, people who have already respected what it is that we do, 
and then increase that footprint based on how we can communicate and connect to them. You know, making a transaction, right? Making a placement in the wine business, we get really excited, right? There's so much enthusiasm and intention around it, and we celebrate it in the sales world, we high-five it. It doesn't matter if the relationship doesn't transcend the transaction. So how do we identify it? Is that there are there are ma- there is a matrix that you can apply to it, data sets, CRM, et cetera, that allows us to look at the information in a very clear way. But you always have to ask yourself in the gut perspective, is that how do I feel about these people? How do they feel about us? What is the relationship like? Right? We're blessed. Our estate director is Eric Johnson, who was the wine director at the French Laundry for 10 years. He's a special person, and he was special for Napa in so many ways because even when I started at Opus, we had four placements on the list, and we left, and there was over 40. Mm. Right? Very knowledgeable, by the way. Wow. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy, but he also cared about the people he was working with, and you could feel that. And that's low-hanging fruit, right? That's one of the most important restaurants and, in the world. And so. he beat me at tennis this morning, too. <laughs> <laughs> he's a good, and golfer. He's a good golfer, too. <laughs> so the reality is, is that we have to be able to transcend the relationship into who we are as people. And at Dow and in patrimony, you know, it's in the culture of how it is that we operate within each, within each other. And then ultimately, how that transcends to those accounts and how they then take those wines to the table. How do they then take it from their fine wine shop and say, hey, listen, I recognize this is a $265 bottle of wine from Paso, and it's Cabernet. I need you. You have to give this wine an opportunity and then they were blown away. I just came back from a trip to Southern California where they had me um, twice a day, five-course meal for lunch, five-course meal for dinner. Not good for my waistline. <laughs> or mine. Uh, and we probably met with about 60 buyers, mm-hmm. and probably some of the most sophisticated buyers in California. And I have to tell you, when, when Chris joined and brought in all this wonderful team with him, mm-hmm. um, we put him uh, in the first year that he's here. We made it very simple to him saying, look, it's very simple. We've got some 16 left. We've got 17 that's going to be released this year. And uh, that's what you got to sell. And let's see how it goes. Well, 16 was gone in a New York minute. 17 was gone in, a two, in two New York minutes. <laughs> and now we're releasing the 18 from now on in the fall so that he actually has something to do till next year. <laughs> and then, but the best part about it is not that. The best part about it, because you know, anybody can sell one bottle of wine. Right. Mm. I mean, if you're a good salesperson, mm. you can sell one bottle of wine, mm-hmm. right? Maybe two. Maybe you can even sell 50 cases of wine. But then how do you know that this wine is going to get sold at the consumer level? And I'll tell you what surprised me. I met, again, with about 60 or 70 buyers in Southern California last week. At least a half said, we got our allocation. Thank you. And oh, by the way, we sold it within 48 hours. Can we have more? I was shocked. 50% of the people that bought the wine that I met with had sold it. I'll tell you this other funny story. I was in Denver. I go to this great steakhouse. Mm. There's a master sommelier there. So I'm there with Sarah. And we said, let's celebrate with a bottle of patrimony because they carry patrimony. So we ordered a bottle of patrimony Cap de Lyon. The master sommelier comes in. And you could see he was a little annoyed almost. But I mean, in a good way. But he was annoyed. Mm. And I'm like, um, he looked at me. He goes, well, I have to tell you, you just took a third of my allocation for my restaurant. <laughs> and I'm not happy about it. And I said, well, you know what? The good news is I know somebody. Right, right. There's some more if you'd like from my library. <laughs> so this is the kind of reaction that, that we've been seeing. And that is honestly due to the great relationships and to the know-how that 
Chris and the entire team that he brought to the patrimony. They're, they're veterans. They're, they're pros. They've done this with their eyes closed. I mean, you talk, for instance, about Steve Palumbo, who works today under Chris. Steve is a legend in California. He's your East Coast guy? No. West Coast. No, West Coast guy, West Coast. okay. Steve is a legend. I mean, you ask anybody in the wine industry about Steve Palumbo, he is the one who made Opus One for the last 22 years in California. Mm. He made Opus One. I mean, he's worked for Opus One for 22 years, right? 22 years. And, and he knows every buyer. He knows what consumers want. And he would have never joined. So just those relationships that he's made, it's like, oh, you're tell, I'm working for Patrimony. Oh, tell me about Patrimony. Oh, man, you have Nobody to flinched, though. Nobody yeah, flinched. right, right, Everybody right. said, we're open to trying it. Yeah. And when they try it, the reaction has always been the same. Wow. Well, you're so it. good at knowing relationships, and it's so much further and deeper than, say, like networking. I mean, like Chris... Over these years, you know, Eric, you just talked about, I mean, or rather the Steve uh, building these relationships. So then when, it, when they make that big life change mm. and now, you know, there's a patrimony logo on their business card. It's like these people who they've met years and years ago, they have no trouble uh, crossing over and, and diving deep because of this. But I want to go back to what you first asked Chris, because that deserves another story. Yeah. Chris is an ace at not only understanding the market, but at building a team. And I have to tell you that we tried to recruit people that worked at Opus One the last few years. Because let's face it, Opus One is until Patrimony and until Dow is the only winery that's been able to get respect, not just in the United States everywhere, but also across the, the globe. I mean, they're in so many countries. So we wanted somebody from there that could bring that experience to the table to really give the true representation of this wine. So we had talked to many of them because for a while, Chris, no, no, I'm not interested. I'm going to take another job. We couldn't get anybody to join. Chris comes to see us in Aspen to George and I. We have dinner together, and we said, Chris, we'd love to have you on board. And, but we tried to get the other people on board, and they just won't join. He goes, I'll have them if you want here tomorrow night, and we'll make the deal. Wow. Next night, two people flew, two people that used to be at Opus One, flew to meet us in Aspen, where our house is, second house. We had dinner together, and after drinking a lot of wine and, and dancing and celebrating, the team was, was created. That's incredible. What a night. And then he brought Drew and he brought Kenji and brought so many other people. And we're not done. We're I mean, we can't hold Drew against him yet. <laughs> that's really cool. No, I mean, I've known Drew Ross for a long time. Love Drew. And that's a really exciting story. Yeah, you're no joke, Chris. I mean, damn. It's humbling to hear it on this side of the thing is, is that, you know, S- Steve is in his 60s, right? And he's, people would say that this is his swan song. And to go from an incredibly secure position with arguably the most important blue chip wine in Napa Valley to leave, to take a leap with, to, to do this, everything had to fit for him. And he's a methodical individual. He's impossible sometimes to manage. He's a tenacious human. And I say that because he cares so much about what he's doing. And to bring him here and then to bring Nick Holmes here is as sales executives is a, it's a privilege and an honor. And then the rest of the crew with Drew and Kenji and Eric, it's honestly, these are relationships you've had for 15, 16, 17, 18 years. Did you know Drew from the Jordan days too? I hired him. Oh, you were the, oh, cool. Um, it's it's my, it's my fault. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Cause I met Drew probably right before then. Um, Danny, I'm really interested to know because what your thoughts on soul of a lion being a real stepping stone to patrimony. Cause I remember when, you know, our first conversation was, you know, maybe 10 years ago and you know, this is before, 
before Soul of a Lion. This was like, you know, the Cab Reserve. And I, I still got an unopened 09 Cab Reserve oh, of yours. I just had it, by the way. Really? It's, it's a fe- beautiful phenomenal. wine. And it is such a youthful wine that you could age it for probably two or three more decades. Wow. But um, I remember when Soul of a Lion... Um, I remember our first interview. Yeah. About Soul of a Lion 2010. Yeah. So you see, Soul of a Lion is the wine that has changed Paso forever. Uh, when we released Soul of a Lion, I still remember, you know, we had we made 550 cases of that wine. I remember a winery here in Paso, I won't mention the name, but uh, they approached me and they said, so we heard you're releasing a $100 Cabernet. I said, yes, I am. At the time, Soul of a Lion was $100, now it's 150 Yeah. So, and he said uh, to me, well, you know, how many cases do you make? I said, 550 cases. And he looked at me and said, you know, our winery's got a little experience selling those higher-end cab. It may take you two or three years to sell this wine. In five weeks, it was gone. Damn. And today, by the way, and I'll share the statistic with you without too many details, but Soul of a Lion is the second most sold high-end Cabernet in California when you count on and off-premise two years in a row. Second, because the only number one is Opus One. So that tells not for you, long. Not for, not for long. Yeah, the whole team joined here. So why do I say that? Not, right. not to be showing up. No, of course not. I say that because I think California first has recognized that the quality that's coming out of the Alameda District or of our winery and in Paso Robles in general is a superior terroir. They're tasting minerality. They're tasting elegance and freshness. It's a very different profile than a wine that is very jammy and, uh, you know, that uh, is acidulated and all these things. We don't need to do any of that. I mean, all our estate wines are made with our native yeast. That's it. There's no acidulation, no color, no sugar, no nothing added, which is why most of our high-end wines have residual sugars of 0.5 gram per liter under. But the consumer is recognizing that, and it's also recognizing that at $150, it's a deal. It's a value. Mm. because you'd have to spend four or five times that to get close to this quality. We're seeing the same thing now across the country. So it started in California, and now it's reverberating all over, reverberating all over the country, but also across the world. We will be in 50 countries this year. Daniel brings up an incredible point, is that you asked me something earlier about a $400 or $1,000 bottle of patrimony. When you look at the competitive set, which is, it's in varied airspace. So if you look at Harlan, Bond, Screaming Eagle, Colgan, Dana, Futo, 100 Acre, Opus, but then you have to then take, to Daniel's point, the international footprint, right? You look at Maceto, the first gross, Grange, Ornelia, Sasakaya, all of it. Anything that you kind of aspire as those, those moment wines where you say, what it is that's in front of me is I'm celebrating something. I'm celebrating life. I'm celebrating connection, our humanity, etc. Like wines at that tier. To Daniel's point about Soul of a Lion being an incredibly affordable $150 bottle of wine in the same capacity, so is Patrimony. Patrimony within its competitive set is still an incremental value. Absolutely. Absolutely. But the thing I, was, I wanted to say, that, that, and I want you to remember that, because this is something that I predicted back 10 years ago, and now I'm going to predict the next 10 years. I predicted 10 years ago that Soul of a Lion will be the wine that changes how people view Paso Robles as a region. I mean, you know, you all know 10 years ago, everybody was saying this is a Zin region or this is a Rhone region. I don't think there's a doubt today in people's mind that high-end cab is king in Paso. That doesn't mean there's no room for other varieties. It just means that Paso cab and Paso cab front, all the Bordeaux varieties, really excel. Uh, and that's changed the way people look at Paso. Today, if you go to Southern California and you talk to a consumer, you talk about Paso Robles, probably going to mention our names, probably going to mention high-end cab. Well, I'm going to make another prediction. In the next 10 years the world will look at high-end Cabernet from California, not from other regions, but from the Adelaide District, especially, and from mm. Paso. 
And I'm, and I'm convinced about that. That's based on science. Based on you know, I remember the work you did with the Cab Collective, and I remember you sat, uh, we were at the Allegretto, and it was this really moving seminar that had, you know, Master Sam, some really big people in this room, and it was a double-blind scenario. So, obviously, all of the people in the chairs, we were all blind to the wines, but so were your panelists. And we had wines from Paso, we had wines from Napa, and we had wines from Bordeaux. And you would taste these wines, and you had some big names in there, and we would taste these wines, and people would go, Oh, that's Napa. That's Bordeaux. We're like, ah, oh, that's Paso. Actually, that's Paso. I mean, it was really, and everybody in the room was like, "Damn, this was a really moving and like, you know, it really caused minds to switch a little bit." Let's talk about that for a second because the reason why this is happening at the end of the day is not, not as much as we have great people, as much as we're, you know, we have great hospitality. All these things are important, but let's talk about the wine specifically, the terroir that we have in Paso. I'm going to speak specifically about Dow and Patrimony. All they're, by the way, neighboring properties, so it's the same. Doesn't exist anywhere on the planet. So we talk about terroir, right? We talk about soil. We talk about climate, right? So Adam, let's talk about soil for a second. Most high-end vineyards in Europe, most respected vineyards in Europe, are in the same kind of soil. Be it Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, Alsace, parts of the Loire Valley. Tuscany, parts of Spain and, Germ- and, 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 uh, and Portugal, Austria and Germany, you're finding the same soil. These soils are called calcareous clay. Not to be confused with limestone, by the way. Calcareous clay. You need the clay. Bordeaux likes clay. Most of Bordeaux is clay with a limestone subsoil. Margot, for instance, is clay with a limestone subsoil. It's argilo calcaire or calcareous clay. Same with the right bank, uh, parts of the left bank as well. So th- these soils are the most famous soils to grow vines on for many reasons. For one, they give you much more than fruit and alcohol and jamminess. They give you minerality and freshness and elegance. Two, they allow you to make naturally made wine. You don't need to acidulate, even in warmer climates like California. And three, they're the only soils that successfully allow you to dry farm. I mean, take this year, a drought year, where we only got about 15 inches of rain on our mountain. Until a week ago when we had that heat wave, we had had zero water. So now we give them half a gallon only just to keep them a little wet as we basically finish the region and get toward harvest. We may give them another half a gallon. That's nothing. Most vines in California are irrigated three to seven gallons a week throughout the entire year, even in winter sometimes if it's a dry winter. Those soils allow you to dry farm. So you get incredibly small size berries and you get to conserve the, the precious water resources. These soils are extremely important. Now, unfortunately, they are not, you don't find them in California, besides a couple of places in the Central Coast, but the largest presence be at Paso Robles. Now, I tell you, I just did 36 interviews, 36 independent interviews with the UK writers. Many of them I've posted on my Facebook or LinkedIn. All of them independently said the same thing. First, they were blown away by the uh, uh, elegance, the freshness, and the minerality of the wine. They all said the same thing because they're used to tasting something very jammy. And that wasn't at all the case. This was fresh. This was elegant. This was balanced. And that's something that really took them by surprise. So, you know, the world is catching on. Now, let's talk about the other side of terroir, climate. Climate is very important. So, you know, I have yet to go through a week. And I don't hear a critic or a journalist say, Pass was very hot. Uh, you know, have you ever been to Napa, Adam? Sure. How would you like it if you went to Napa, stayed in Carneros? left Carneros and wrote an article and published it that you've been to Napa and Sonoma and it is very cold. You wonder how they grow cab. Right. That would be pretty stupid. You would. I totally know what you mean. <laughs> but yet people come here in the summer 
like July or August, they stay downtown. And yes, downtown can be hot. And then they leave saying, well, I've been to Paso. It's really hot. There are two ways you can really measure climate. You talk about how many days are 100 degrees or more and what the average maximum temperature, because that is directly correlated to growing degree days. So it's a heat accumulation kind of indication. So you don't want to have a very high average because it gets too hot. The reason you don't want a lot of days at 100 degrees is because the minute you get to 100 degrees or close to 100 degrees, the vine shuts down, it goes into survival mode, you no longer produce sugar. So for instance, Paso, especially on, by the airport, which is where the weather station is, we'll see 30 days on the average at 100 degrees. So people always wonder, you're picking cab already, I'm a month away. Yes, because we only saw zero days at 100 degrees and we produce sugar. In the meantime, the other parts that are a little hotter have to wait. So they come in a month later. So we're always one of the first ones in Paso that actually harvest grapes, including Cabernet Sauvignon. Our Cabernet right now is at 24 to 25 bricks already. So that's very typical. So let's take a look at the last two years, 2019 and 20. In 19, the number of days that reached 100 degrees in Paso at the airport was 28 days. And that was a cooler year. Napa in San Elena, at in the town, so it's a little bit cooler than when you go in the vineyards. In 2019, saw 11 days reach 100 degrees. Calistoga saw many more, okay? But we're going to keep it at San Lino because it's a good average. Mm-hmm. Uh, even Poyac, the birthplace of Cabernet Sauvignon in Bordeaux, saw four days at 100 degrees. They called it a California year. They loved it because they actually ripened and phenolics are higher and, and the wines actually are tasting great. So yeah. they're, they're very excited about it. We saw on Down Mountain the entire 2019 calendar year, zero days at 100 degrees. In 2020, third warmest year on record, we had four heat waves, okay, very, very bad ones also, and you, I'm sure you remember all the smoke and the fire in California. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a very warm year. Well, in 2020, the Paso downtown of the airport saw 32 days at 100 degrees. Napa saw 13. Poyac saw two. We saw six. Our average maximum temperature is always around two to four degrees cooler than Napa. Four degrees or so Four to five degrees warmer than Bordeaux, thankfully, because we ripen. Yeah. And about five to seven degrees easily cooler than the airport and Paso Robles. So what you have is that combination of the perfect climate to achieve ripeness in September every year, combined with not a lot of days at 100 degrees, so you don't overcook the grapes and you don't sunburn the canopy and you don't sunburn the grapes and all that stuff. Is this because of our elevation? Because of the elevation and the proximity of the Pacific Ocean. We are the only vineyard in California that's at... 2,200 feet elevation, but only 14 miles from the Pacific Ocean. Hmm. There are some that get close. So this is why in the last four years, we've realized the precious area we're in. And we've looked at a mile, uh, at an at a area that's about a two-mile radius from our winery. And today, we're on close to 900 acres within two miles of that mountain. Yeah. How many patrimonies are we going to make? How many do we have now? And how many, what's the, what's the plan? Right now, it's a small production. I mean, we're starting small. Yeah. Uh, I think if you count all four SKUs that we have, we probably, per vintage, we probably make about twelve to 1,500 cases. Uh, hopefully, it's going to go, eventually, we'd like to get to about a five to 7,000 case production, as long as the quality is there. Uh, and I think that will be a great number to start with. And you know, the rest, we don't know. Future will tell. We also plan on introducing a second label at some point. But really? Yeah. What's yeah. that going to be called? Uh, don't know yet, but it's going to be a high-end second label. Uh, so so what, not even a patrimony name? No. Is it'll it going to be like above Dow, below patrimony? Above Dow. 
uh, under patrimony. So above sort of a line, yeah. price-wise, but under patrimony price-wise. Is but patrimony I, always going to be the, the pinnacle? So patrimony is going to always be the, middle, the pinnacle, but patrimony is really there to showcase single varieties. Yeah. So, for instance, we have 100% cab. We have 100% cab for all. We made 100% Merlot last year. That is unbelievable. What are you making, matrimony? What are you doing? No, that, no, that was taken. <laughs> as long as I don't take, as long as I don't take alimony. I'm right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's about taking, it's about giving it. Maybe Montiel? Montiel, I like that. We could Montiel, call. second yeah. label. I'll sign off on that. <laughs> it's going to be also a different blend, though. It's going to be a blend that is different than sort of a line, and it's going to be a blend as opposed to 100% variety. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. So it'll like be a Bordeaux blend. Correct. You want to use all five, or you just use a few uh, of them? Probably four. Uh-huh. I, I'm not a big fan of Petit Verdot and Paso. Oh. It's late ripening. Uh, I thought you were going to say Malbec. No, you, I love Malbec and you Paso. Do, you play with Malbec? Yeah, I love Malbec and Merlot and Cabernet Franc. I know you love Merlot. I know you yeah. love Merlot, yeah. Yeah, but uh, Petit Verdot is, I would say, it's, I mean, it's good for small quantities, but, you know, in most places in the world, people use Petit Verdot because it gives them more color. Yeah. And also, what I like it for is not for color, because actually our Cabernet, our Cabernet Franc and our Merlot are darker than Petit Verdot. Yeah. The Dow Cab Franc is like one of my absolute favorites. I love it. Uh, yeah. And I know you do one with the patrimony too. Um, Chris, let's talk about Paso a little bit. What is it about Paso that you were really excited to get into? I know that obviously you're kind of learning a lot because there may not have been a lot in the beginning because you're from Napa. But what you're seeing, I mean, obviously the hospitality and what you're kind of digesting more about yeah. Paso that's special. I mean, of course. I think that 40 years ago, Napa Valley was a rogue place, right? It infuriated the world. The tasting of Paris, right, was a moment that became a reference to all of a sudden quantify and from a qualitative perspective that Napa deserved to be on the world stage. What I love about Paso is that that hunger that existed in Mr. Mondavi and Mr. Sullivan and those who set the footprint for what became Napa Valley is happening here right now. Healdsburg even, I mean... 14 years ago at Jordan, downtown Healdsburg was not even close to what it is today. Paso's in that same space. There is an entrepreneurial ship that is engaged with it. There is a belief in something, right? There is obviously, when Daniel talks about phenolics and we talk about ratings, there's an empirical quality to what's happening that's identifying the moment. But the coolest part is, is that we have nothing and everything to prove. And there are historical components that, are, that exist in our purview so that when you get to communicate it, it's that there's no, there's no reference for this wine, right? For, for patrimony. There isn't in this area yet, right? But what'll happen is, is that people will say, oh my God, right? Like everybody does. It's like, well, if he can do it, I can do it. Then if he can do it, I can do it. And then they pop up like mushrooms on a forest floor. And the coolest thing is, is that it doesn't exist yet. So to be in a position in the world where we get to define our future together and set the tone for the region is by far the most interesting thing. You know, as a fine wine kid, you always inherit brands, right? Like you do, you, you inherit it's something that somebody else had already done most of the time because those wines that have a legacy attached to them are, have been around for dozens, tens, 20, 30, 50, 40, 60 years. With patrimony, it's that it fe- has the felt sense of a legacy that hasn't been fully sought through yet, right? It's still single generation, even though the second generation is coming into the business, and then the third and the fourth and the fifth. And I go back to something that the Baron Philippe de Rochelle said about, about making great wine. He's like, it's easy. It's just the first hundred years are hard. And I love that because these wines are great, but the true test of time will be the footprint that we create now and how that transcends time past 
my kids and my kids' kids and Daniel's kids and their kids' kids, which again, even an homage to the name of patrimony, makes it feel like something real and alive and giving birth to something. So even though these wines are transcending what the region has ever seen, there's also something in saying about we're also planting a seed that'll give birth to an incredible estate that'll give birth to opportunities for us to be able to be more, have a felt sense and presence in the world, all while simultaneously creating the environment within us. Some of that is creating best practices of how we take the brand to market, how it is that we continue to hold on to the Paso sense of hospitality, the Dow sense of hospitality, of being welcomed and engaged and there's warmth and there's connection so that we don't lose where it is that we came from. And, you know, I will say, my time in Napa and Sonoma is that it's transcended to that consumer, right? It's that they've priced themselves at incredibly high prices. Even when we're talking about rarefied air like patrimony, is that we're seeing Paso grow because people are recognizing you can get an unbelievable experience, incredible wine, incredible food, something that'll blow your mind and you'll be treated like a human being. And three hours away from Southern California. Exactly. Right. So our proximity right. is unbelievable and we're over again delivering at the price point, even though hotels like the Allegretto are getting six, $700 a night and the Piccolo is getting eight, $900 a night downtown, is that there is a market for it and what I love about being here at this time is that Daniel and George are committed to ensuring that this stays with the humility that was intended in the beginning. Yeah. And that's something that when you take price increases, right, you start alienating people that met you there in the very beginning, right? When you start pushing price and then volume, how do you hold the supply chain in tandem, right? Everything in the fine wine market is built on supply and demand. and Demand must always succeed supply. And what Daniel's being incredible with is ensuring that we're meeting the market where it's at and that we grow it patiently and methodically so that we're reaching the right consumers, the right accounts, so that we can take the time to build a footprint that'll sustain it for generations to come. We created this wine uh, to really create a legacy for George and I. We want people to hopefully not forget us when we're long gone and say, okay, these two guys came in here and they really believed in the region and they helped the region and this is the winery that they created. You thought that would have been enough, damn. (laughs) Overachiever you are. (laughs) Are you going to be a player locally? I mean, Obviously, I want to get into the Patrimony Estate coming next, but I mean, is someone going to be going wine tasting at Patrimony in Paso? Or are we going to be an international player? That's incredibly important. So in the interim, as our estate is being built, which I'll let Daniel elaborate on because that's definitely his baby, but... Eric Johnson, who's our estate director, will be located up here at Dow Mountain. We're in the process of creating an exclusive patrimony experience that is inclusive of going over to the new patrimony site, tasting through the wines, having an incredible chef's experience that we're, we're creating um, specifically to those wines and partnering with vendors that are of the patrimony caliber that we're looking to associate with. And... And then evolve that into what will be the preeminent destination for experiencing Cabernet in California. Adam, let's rewind a little bit. Please. 11 years ago, when we started our tasting room, I want to remind you, you would line up at a bar, they would taste you on some wine saying, you want to join our club? Here it is. Mm -hmm. We created a hospitality center where people receive a true experience. And we called it the three Ps. When people come there, they get great people, great place with views, etc., and great products. Those are the three Ps. That's our formula. We inspired a lot of wineries to follow suit. And today, many wineries in Paso serve food. They pair them with wine, which is the legal way to doing it. Obviously, that's how we do it. And 
create a full experience. We get 70,000 visitors a year on that mountain. I get a message every day, every day, not every two, three days, every day, saying, we can't get in. We're booked for three months. Can you get us in? Mm. Okay. That's created a frenzy almost. Okay. So that hospitality, the reason we created that is because wine is not a product. Wine is an experience. And I'm somebody who's been collecting wine for 30 Four years. I just dated myself. Okay. 34 years I've been collecting wine. So I was 22 years old. Since he was six. <laughs> I wish. I wish. I, I probably would have. I started drinking at 13 with my dad. Right. You know, with friends. But, uh, and I hated to go to a winery that made me look like I have to kiss their ring because I'm there. Mm. And I was there for half hour and they lined me up like a cattle on a bar saying, here, taste the wine and, you know, you want to join our club. I didn't want that. I wanted an experience. True wine deserves an experience. Wine is an experience, not a product. So you need the culinary experience. You need the hospitality experience. You need the people that educate you. We call them you know, educators, the people that work for us. And they're passionate about what they do. So patrimony is going to take all that to a much higher level. I've worked relentlessly for about a year, uh, of course, with a team and my brother and, and the architect that we hired here locally, uh, Heidi Gibson, who is a very talented lady. And created a hospitality center that the world hasn't seen yet. Let me describe it. You walk into this winery, valet parking is waiting for you. You enter this world and you go through an immersion experience where you're taught for 30 minutes how we make our wine. Then you go down to the cheese cave and you select the cheeses that you want. Then you go into the caves, do a barrel tasting, or you can switch to have, hopefully from a star Michelin restaurant, a five or seven course meal paired with the best wines. I mean, and a cigar room, by the way, where if you want to have a smoke a cigar, you don't have to bother anybody. You can go in the room and smoke it. I'm sorry. I haven't been listening since Cheese Cave. And, and, then, let me, let me, and then let me finish. Let me finish. There's another thing. Hopefully, of course, this is all pending county approval. We have right. to work with the county, and they may make some changes, so that's all pending potential changes. We also have a hospitality where we'll have eight suites, eight large bedrooms, where people can come there and actually be immersed in the actual terroir. Let them wake up in the morning, see the beauty of Paso. Let them, let them stay there at night, watch the stars in the Milky Way, which we see at 2,200 feet at night. So we're trying to elevate the bar in Paso. I think if you talk to anybody, you, you know that my brother and I have elevated the bar in Paso. We now want to take it to the next level. And I mean, extreme we're, next level. Like we're, we're taking many, many steps up and just we're leaping. Correct. And, and, and the reason we're doing it again is because we believe in really being immersed in the place you're going. So Patrimony will have its own winery? Absolutely. Its own, I mean, like a, a separate winery to make the wines. The only thing that you're going to share between Patrimony and that is me, the winemaker. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> you know, you asked a really great question, Adam, earlier about, you know, how are we managing this infancy, right? There's six of us that are managing um, Patrimony independently, but also inclusive of Dow. All of those components that will fundamentally make it easier for us to spend our time in front of accounts, in front of consumers, and putting this wine into the world together. So right now, there's a very sweet, gentle, and appropriate relationship as we do this. And there's a lot of models, right? I mean, it, so Steve Palumbo, we mentioned earlier, he's our VP of the West, was Opus 22 years. I asked him specifically when we all started this project together, I said, how many times did you go across the street to Robert Mondavi in 22 years from Opus 1? Literally across the street on Highway 29. Once. One time in 22 years, even though they share a 400-acre parcel of Tokelon Vineyard, one of the most acclaimed vineyards on the planet together, he had tasted over there once. Okay? 
That's what happens when there is separation in the luxury segment from the people who set the foundation for roots for who it is that you are. And what I'm tasked with from Daniel and from George is to ensure that the bond remains solid, felt, consistent, and that they feel a part of what it is that we're doing, not that we're coming in as these, you know, Navy SEAL type fine wine kids that are going to... From Napa. Yeah. The four-letter word. Right. Careful. It's okay. Paso is too. And they're exactly all good right. Yeah. yeah. Paso is probably up there. It is. So the cool thing is, is that if we do this right and we're intentional behind it, is that we can all be proud of what this means. Because we make huge statements, big, gigantic footprint statements. And it seems that way until you spend time with Daniel talking about his wines and the humility that goes into them. The methodology, the consistency, the, the respect that it takes to not make these wines overblown, powerful, punch you in the face, translates into how he treats us as humans, right? It would be easy to be demonstrative and diminutive and all those things, but it doesn't exist here. There's so many things happening out there in the world where wines are showing up all the time, 300, 400, 500, 600 dollars. Who are you? Okay, you get 100 point scores. What Daniel does, 25 wines over 95 points, that again is a sense of value. And again, scores are a tricky thing, especially in the luxury segment. I think it's so important to touch on that briefly is that we recognize that they validate the position. But if you uniquely sell on those scores, what happens again is just like the pricing in Bordeaux is that you alienate the consumer that bought your wine at 97 points because you say then, well, that wasn't as good. What we need people to understand is Daniel is making a wine that represents the best of the vintage, the climate, the cultivar, what it is that he's doing in the cellar to launch something that is an artistic expression of the highest form of a particular year. And it's a moment that he captures like lightning in a bottle. And that's that moment. And it can never be recreated again. And when you recognize that, like the art on the wall in this room, there's only one of it. And it'll only be there for a minute. And wine is so beautiful because those moments are not infinite. Because once it's gone, it's gone. And I think that going back to your question about the responsibility component, if we do this right, the rest of the world will start motating down and starting to compete and want to compete with what it is that Daniel's done. You did it in Napa. Opus One was the first cult wine in California, arguably, right? Of any, and it was $50 a bottle, 1984. Oh my God. People were pissed and it caused all the things. I imagine people are saying that about us right now. Oh, I'm sure. And I, I hear it all the time. I, yes, and you know, I hear it all the time. Oh, especially the fact that, like, I mean, I'm sure it happened when I, it happened when the first $100 ticket came at the California Midstate Fair concert. You know, I mean, like it happens in the first $100 wine and Paso wine shirt, and now you got a $350. I mean, you know, we talked about this in the last time of like what some of the the, the chatter is. Of course, well, you, you know what? Uh, it, it, that's unfortunate, but let me tell you, you got to look at the forest, not the trees. Uh, Ten, twenty years from now, it's going to go away. When was the last time you had doubt about anything? I don't remember. As long as people tell me I can't do it, I don't have doubts. The minute they say I can't, I'm going to start worrying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm. So it's almost like um, you don't, that's, that's not a piece of your programming. No. To go back to your old school days. <laughs> you, you know, we, my brother and I always have lived being the underdog. It doesn't matter. We immigrated twice. Um, we started our first company when we were very young. And all we heard all our life is, no, 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 you can't do it. So we now we're, we're trained for that. When we hear you can't do it, 
say, okay, we're on the right track. <laughs> so we don't mind it. How important is patrimony to Paso's legacy? I think it's huge. I think this, and this is, thank you for bringing this up. For those who are listening to this and are thinking, as I'm sure many are, because we've already heard complaints from neighbors about the fact that we're building patrimony. Here's my message. What are they tripping on? Oh, you name it. It's too big. And is it going to be too big? And is it going to do this and that already? I mean, we haven't even, we're barely applying for the county right now. But here's what I want to tell these people. Ten years ago, we believed in Paso. And we're not trying to take the credit for everything that's happened in Paso, but we've had a big influence with it. If patrimony is successful, people will flock from all over the world to come see this region, and they will come visit you. We're not telling them to just come see us. We encourage them to go see other wineries. So look at the forest, not the trees. This is going to help Paso. Um, well, the two Opus, things that the way you- Opus One helped Napa. That's wild. When do you see patrimony, uh, this idea open? A couple years? I mean, uh, the estate, the, so the B&B. Assuming the county gives us approval, mm-hmm. again, I want to make sure I'm respectful of the fact that they have to approve it. Um, we're thinking we'll open 2024, probably by fall. I have to tell you this funny story. You know, we, we get people that come from Napa all the time and they join our club. Because we have a bottle of wine that's like an estate Cabernet Sauvignon that sells for $85 in the tasting room. We don't sell it wholesale. So club members pay $70 for it, $65. It's a beautiful bottle of Cabernet that can probably age four or five decades. Mm-hmm. It's uberly high phenolics, probably in the 0.1 percentile in the world, and it's very pleasant to drink. I had this gentleman, I'm not going to mention the winery, that wouldn't be fair, who owns a very successful winery in Napa who receives countless 100 points, the wine sell for $250 and higher, okay? Came down here, contacted me, and said, I'd like to have lunch with you. I said, sure, that would be a pleasure. So that gentleman came in. We had lunch together. You know what? I give him credit because he was very honest. At the end, he stood up. He goes, shook my hand to say goodbye. He said, I would like to buy a case of that estate cab. Can I do that? I said, absolutely. And then he looked at me. That estate cab is better than every wine we make. Wow. A winery owner from Napa who gets 100 points, said that. Tell me off the air who it was. I will tell you off the record. All right, cool. Okay? I'm dying but, to know. But, but, but that's, that's crazy. This is the kind of reaction we're yeah. getting. And that is helping Paso. Mm-hmm. Sure. When, no, we yeah. get, when we get these 70,000 visitors that come a year, they're not just coming for Dow. They want to spend here three days. Yeah, no. They want to go visit right. other wineries. Mm-hmm. And we encourage them to do so. I mean, there are many varieties that grow great in Paso. Yeah. Be it Petit Syrah or be it Grenache, or, you know, GSM, or be it uh, Zinfandel or be it uh, whatever. So, you know, we want Paso to, to get the honor it deserves. And, you know, critics are coming around. They're starting to recognize more and more that and rewarding the wines. But I tell you, I mean, I, I, I love critics. They've been great for us. But to me, where the rubber meets the road is not where the ratings are. To me, it's consumer adoption. 100%. And when I look at a wine like Soul of a Lion, that's two years in a row, outsold every high-end Cabernet in California besides Opus One, what does that tell me? The consumer is recognizing that. That's more important to me. When I walk into a restaurant and I see somebody drinking a bottle of Soul of a Lion, makes my heart very happy because it's telling me that the world is recognizing what this region deserves. This region deserves world recognition. This region deserves to really shine because it has all the elements to do so. And we're going to work very hard on making sure that happens. 
You know, it's fun to be good at things. And obviously, you're a great winemaker. You're good at so many things. But it's also kind of fun when you are good at a lot of things to not be good at a couple things and to have something that you have to kind of work at, try, read on. <laughs> what are some things for, for you that you have to kind of be deliberately – and what are you laughing about? <laughs> We were having a conversation of uh, something that Danny's not good at, and it's patience. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not very patient. I'm horrible at You patience. want something now. I'm horrible at that. I am not a patient person. Yeah. That drives me, though. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, has this been fun for you, my man? It's the coolest. I, you know, it's going back, like, to wrap up is that I've worked at a lot of really incredible wineries. This is the only one where I'm a wine club member. So I'm not just, <laughs> I feel like the hair club for men a little bit. Like I'm not just a, the SVP. I'm also I'm, a client. I'm also a client. Yeah. I love this place and I love what it is that it's doing for the community of wine and how it is that we're going to be able to connect and to be able to share a little bit about what we're doing is really awesome. So thank you so much for hanging with us. Obviously Dow Mountain, Dow Ocean is going to be in the future. Are we going to do like Dow Lunar? Are we getting, what are we doing? Are we, <laughs> Dow, Dow Mars. <laughs> Dow Mars, right? Uh, so Dow really Mars. it's patrimony is the, is the big thing on our mind right now. That's right the next. Now, patrimony is a big thing. As you, as you know, Adam, when you uh, submit things for the county, uh, they will only take one submission at a time. Yeah. So we've got a lot of projects going on, many of them, but four or five of them. Uh, we decided to prioritize them and put patrimony first. So assuming we get approval on patrimony within hopefully 14 months or so, um, we will move forward on the other submissions to work on Dow Ocean and all the other projects we're working on. This has been fun. Another in-depth interview with Danny Dow <laughs> and Adam Montiel. Montiel, Monsieur Montiel. Did you have fun? I had a great, I always have a great time with you. And yeah, this is fun. Yeah, this is always fun. You know, you, we talk a lot about us, but you know, let's talk about you for a second. You're really helping Paso. Mm. I mean, oh, you, you, so you're much. really having a huge following. Um, I meet people often that are outside of the, of the region and they listen to your podcast and, and they follow you and, and you're really helping the wineries here really come to light. And uh, on behalf of all the wineries, we thank you. We appreciate oh, I it. Think that's, I mean, that, makes, that moves me to hear you say that, especially someone like you. And it's been awesome to meet Chris. And I just am so thankful for the Paso Wine Alliance. I mean, you know, we'll talk to folks and whether it's on the air, off the air, just what Paso Wine is doing for the area and the wineries is so special and that they would, you know, be so progressive in their thinking and outside the box, but very also just like, you know, bullseye with having a podcast and putting some love behind it and, and really trying to get as many people to to listen and come visit Paso and visit these special wines. I mean, it's happening. I mean, it's it really definitely is happening mm -hmm. and it's beautiful that we're living in a time where we're seeing this, this uh, you know, revolution happen really in yeah. the wine industry i mean there isn't a doubt that paso is disrupting the wine industry right now i love it i mean when you look at the statistics when you look at the numbers numbers speak very loud numbers don't lie yeah i mean you look at the numbers first sold the, the cabernet sauvignon luxury category dow yeah from paso number yeah. two justin from paso yeah what does that tell you <laughs> right people consumers are recognizing that paso delivers great wines that are affordable, regardless of the price point. It's a really cool time. Chris kind of touched on it earlier. I mean, it's a cool time to be in Paso to do what I do the last, you know, 10 years. And then with the last year and a half of this podcast, it's, it's super exciting. And I think it's only, you know, it's only becoming more on fire, you know. I should make fire jokes around you, Chris. Sorry. Absolutely. It's only because it brings me back. It brings me back. PTSD. What do the kids say? It's lit. No, it's just, it's a really exciting time. And patrimoniestate.com, is that the website? Patrimoniestate.com. Learn about it. Get it in your mouth. Get it on a list. I, I get would it. get on the list quickly because Please. Uh, right now we're so allocated that we're, if you want to get patrimony in the future, and uh, there are some incredible reviews coming out, hopefully the rest of the year, uh, get on the list because otherwise, unfortunately, we'll be out of wine. Press. See us on social media too. 
too. What's we're starting to curate right now is amazing. You should also follow Daniel on social media. What he's doing and previewing the world is awesome and valid and important to see. So yeah, I do love following you, Daniel J Dow, on like Insta. Yeah, Insta or Facebook is Daniel. But I'm maxing out Facebook. I'm already at five thousand. Oh, look at you! (laughs) I do radio shows. I don't even have five thousand people on Facebook. Yeah, Yeah, I guess so. On Insta, you can definitely follow me. It's unlimited. Daniel J Dow. Yeah, I you know I post a lot of educational thing and during harvest. I will actually take you live in the in the winery, show you how I make the wine. Show you. I saw you doing covers. some night picks the other day. Yes, yes. You've already started what you're solving on blanc. Sauvignon blanc, Sauvignon, both okay. got harvested at least one block. Uh, this weather cooled down quite a bit last week, so I think we'll start harvesting again next week. Well, even to get you here and harvest, it is such a blessing, gentlemen. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mr. And, Montiel. Uh, thank you, Mr. Montiel. Montiel, Montiel. Montiel. <laughs> Jesus. No, only da- yeah, Dan Drew's <laughs> the one who told me how to pronounce it. He's- <laughs> Danny, uh, first did one of our first interviews ten years ago. He's like, "Your name is so much better. Forget this Montiel. Forget this Montiel." I stuff. cannot say Montiel. I, yeah. know. I look at it. I'm, I'm reading Montiel. it like, Montiel. because I'm French educator. It's French. Montiel. So it sounds so good. Thank you to Drew. Thank you to all the folks and uh, Joel sitting here. And I wish we had enough mics for everybody. But uh, gentlemen, this has been an incredible time. Patrimonyestate.com. And let's cheers, glasses up to Paso cheers. and to Patrimony. Thank cheers. you, sir. Cheers. Cheers. Give me that time. We'll get by. We pass on around till the job is done. In the trees, it will simplify good company. Wow, thanks so much to Danny Dow, Chris Avery for the conversation. Had a blast. And man, that wine is just like next level in all aspects in color, in smooth, sexy tannins. I mean, from the way. It smells to the way it covers each and every part of your palate and goes down. You are constantly impressed. You savor the sip and are reminded what a special wine this is. If you want to get your hands on some patrimony, I don't blame you. I ask that you just invite me, please, (laughs) so I can be there again. It is definitely a special experience. Hit up patrimonyestate.com. And next time you're even at Dow, let them know you heard them on this podcast here and give them a follow on Insta at Patrimony Estate. Well, speaking of Instagram, you could follow me there at Adam on the air. I got some pics from this episode going up. I even got a pic of Danny's a personal seller at his house. Oh my God. Insane. Go check that out. All right. So for today's travel Paso spotlight, wanted to put the focus on a really cool spot downtown and one that's about to celebrate a I think it's two-year anniversary this fall. Talking about the Piccolo Hotel. Man, is it a beautiful place. Rooftop bar, Moet vending machine. And the place just kind of oozes class and nice vibes. Wanted to chat with somebody from the property and was lucky enough to get Martin Beckett. He is the director of hospitality, and he's on with me now. How are you, my man? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm good, man. The Piccolo is um, really a special place. I mean... It is kind of like this, you know, you're, you're in the same family as the, the Paso Robles Inn, which has a ton of Paso history. And I know that the architects kind of tried to tap into a little of that history with the exposed brick. But you guys are also very modern and very chic. And, and the vibe there, it's, I mean, it is really a cool spot. 
Yes, yes, it is. And yeah, um, our brick that we do have on the you know facade of the building, we did tie that into our rooms as well. Inside the rooms, there is a brick kind of headboard that outlines uh, over the bed, and that's our nod to the sister property, the Paso Robles Inn, to try and bring that in. But as well as you know, the modern, you know, elegant uh, touches that we do have. We worked with a lot of local artists, um, building the rooms from you know blacksmiths building chandeliers in the room to, you know, a, a lot of a lot of just personal touches throughout the whole property here. Now, one of the cool things about the Piccolo, whether you stayed there or not, I mean, I've had a drink at your rooftop bar, first rooftop bar in Paso, and that is a win. Everybody loves it. It is. It's been a very popular, popular spot up there. You know, being out in the elements, it does get hot, it does get cold, but if you are if you time it right and you get a good time on the sunset, it, it definitely ends up working out. So, yeah, we have craft cocktails, we serve a little bit of food, flatbread sandwiches, charcuterie boards, and a few des- desserts, just, a, you know, a couple snacks here and there. Speaking of snacks, we've seen vending machines forever at hotels, but never a Moet vending machine. How the hell did you guys score that? That is something the GM of the the both properties had wanted to put into the Piccolo just to bring a different personal touch. And boy, was that a good choice on her part. Erica Freiberger did that, and it has been working out. It's been very popular. Gets a lot of a lot of publicity. I want to say one of the most photographed things on property here, other than you know the sunsets at the rooftop bar. We we sell the custom gold coins at the front desk uh, for the IDing purposes. We have to do that, but it's it's very popular of rosé champagne or the brute champagne of the Moet there and it's 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 a fun one it's how many people will hit up the uh, Moet vending machine a day I mean there there is a few a day or what Absolutely, yeah. Weekends, obviously, when we get a little bit more foot traffic, people will come in just for the Moet vending machine, <laughs> you know, say that they've seen it on our social media. We've had guests stay with us just because of the vending machine, but um, we can sell anywhere to 10 to 15 coins on, on a weekend and um, or on a day on, on the weekends right. and get a little bit of traffic through there. So. That is so cool. Yeah, the Moet vending machine. So uh, we're talking to uh, the director of hospitality, Martin Beckett, uh, the Piccolo. What is the website? How can people learn more about it? I know you guys come small bites there. It's really kind of a cool vibe. And, you know, what a way to enjoy a visit to Paso Robles, if not, you know, just hanging out downtown, then including the Piccolo in your stay or your or your bites. Absolutely, yeah. So we, you know, a lot of the places on on area on the property here are available to guests and non-guests. The rooftop bar and the Piper Wine Lounge are available for non-guests. Um, but if you're looking to stay with us, visit thepiccolo.com and uh, you can book a stay there or call us directly at the hotel here, 805-226-5920, and we can help you get booked. And availability is online as well as prices and some pictures of the room located in in the heart of downtown, walking distance to all of our wonderful restaurants and downtown wineries and shops. So that's a big bonus that we do have here. Just a beautiful place. I mean, it was just cut out real nice. Uh, the place looks fantastic. The deck, the Thank decor you. is fantastic. And I know the people there are great too. And Martin Resorts does a great job. If you ever stayed in Pismo, they got a few properties there. Of course, the pass roll was in, like you noted. And uh, you guys encourage folks, like if you want to come up, Come to the bar rooftop. You don't have to stay there. You can just come and hang for a drink. Is that true? Absolutely. Yes, sir. Yes. The rooftop bar and our wine lounge are both open uh, to the public. Love it. Uh, Martin Beckett, he is the director of hospitality 
and the the key. He's got the key to the Moet vending machine, man. I appreciate talking to you. I really uh, thank you for sharing where wine takes you. Thank you very much, Adam. It was a pleasure talking with you. There again, Director of Hospitality of the Piccolo, downtown Paso, Martin Beckett. Thanks for your time, my man. A reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and make sure to tell a friend about where wine takes you. Where Wine Takes You is executive produced by Joel Peterson and Paso Wine. Associate producer, Jen Bravo. Where Wine Takes You is recorded, edited, and produced by yours truly. Next time you're hanging out on the Central Coast, feel free to tune me in on your radio, my morning show, Up and Adam in the Morning, Coast 104.5, and uh, Wine Country Radio, The Cork Dorks, Liquid Lunch, and more on The Crush, 92.5. Both those stations stream live, have apps in your smartphone, and it'd be fun to have you tune in. Well, again, we are smack dab in full force harvest mode, harvest beast mode, baby, 2021. If you're out and about, uh, make sure you uh, ask for a little tour, ask to see the crush pad, ask for a little uh, little taste of something off the crush pad. I don't know. Paso harvest is just so much fun. Until next time, lift that glass high. Thank you so much for connecting with me and sharing where wine takes you. Cheers. And give me that push, I will get by We pass on down till the job is Get out in the trees, it will simplify Good come, give me that push, I will get by We pass on down till the job is Get out in the trees, it will simplify Good come, give me that push, I will get by We pass on down till the job is out in the trees, we will simplify in good company. With that moonshine, we'll get by. We pass on round till the job is dry. Camped out in the trees, we will simplify in good company.